The spirit of innovation is mostly positive. After all, innovation leaps humanity forward. The wheel enabled transportation, space exploration led to the internet, and the smartphone has connected the world. These are just some examples. The innovation wheel keeps turning. There's no doubt about that. But for our brief history of breakthrough innovation, we've rarely had to discuss or think about the ethics behind those efforts like we do with the next breakthrough, artificial intelligence and machine learning. AI and ML are widely considered to be the tools that will leap humanity forward into the future. But there's a catch. Who decides the ethics of AI and ML? Who tells the computer how it should think? What should the computer value? What is ethical? And at what point have we gone too far? This technology is not fully developed. There are a lot of risks associated with it and there are no regulations. So we don't know all of the consequences of using this technology. When we think about innovation, we think about all the good that will come from it and rarely think about the consequences that innovation leaves in its wake. Someone is thinking about that though, and that someone is Bina Amanath. As the executive director of Deloitte's Global AI Institute, it's her job to go through all the what ifs of AI. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Bina explains how she weighs all the outcomes and she discusses the three paths companies are currently pursuing to get to ethical AI. She also talks about why trustworthy AI and machine learning will be the secret to all successful technology breakthroughs. Enjoy. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have the executive director of the global Deloitte AI Institute in AI ethics, Bina Amanath. Bina, welcome to the show. Thank you, Albert. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Tell our audience what it is you do with AI for Deloitte and you know, we're going to definitely dive into the idea of the ethics behind it, because that is going to be super interesting. But I'd love for you to share with our audience exactly your role. Awesome. So, uh, you know, I play two key roles. The first one is I lead our global Deloitte AI Institute, which is really connecting uh, all the possible dimensions of applied AI. So, Albert, I've been at Deloitte for almost two years now, but I come from uh, the industry or, you know, my prior life has all been in building out AI and data products and solutions and taking it to market. And uh, what I've seen was a challenge was also as AI started becoming real, well, there was, there's a lot happening in the AI space, right? Even when, you know, when I'm building an AI product or it's solving for a specific business problem, say supply chain optimization or predicting machine failure. I know the problem statement as a business. What I didn't know is what is the fastest way to get to that solution? right? Because there are startups in the mix. There is research happening from academia in the mix. There are mature AI products. There are regulations happening. So how do you bring all these dimensions to the table for solving specific uh, applied AI problems, business problems? That's what we do under the Deloitte AI Institute. We very much focus on the applied AI lens and bring in the different dimensions. I also lead our AI ethics initiative, which is really where uh, we call it trustworthy AI because we believe that trust has to be at the center. And then you have to think about ethics from the lens of 
how do you get trust within AI solutions that we're building? There are different dimensions to it, I know, and I know you want to deep dive into it, so I'll hold off on going at length into that aspect. Yeah, so I mean, just so our audience has a framework, you know, we're I'm checking out your LinkedIn. I mean, you've been held VP level and higher roles in AI data science. So this isn't we're not just talking about someone who is, you know, because you know how a lot of startups say they have AI. And <laughs> when you dive in deep, you find out that they don't have that much AI. But you've been a part of this for quite a bit of time, including acting as and serving as the CTO for artificial intelligence at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. It sounds like you've been in the Dean of Engineering at Cal Poly for this. And you also are the founder of Humans for AI. So you have extensive experience. One of the things that we always hear about in AI is the idea, and this is like a pervasive thing, right? Can AI go awry? And I think that's where the ethics part of it is really interesting. The other thing I want to dive into and, and hear your perspective is when we talk to people who build AI-based algorithms that try to figure out AI-based solutions. And if you ask a single engineer on those projects, like what will ha- what is the outcome of this data input? A lot of times they'll say like, they don't know. Like for example, in the movie, The Social Dilemma, people are like, does anyone really know how Facebook figures out what content to show you anymore? And it's like, this might be lost. Like the AI is figuring everything out, right? And so because we know that AI from someone who's not too familiar with it, maybe just from reading articles, we know that it is self-learning. It is taking data inputs and impacting and optimizing for something. There's always that fear that things can go awry. I'd love for you to dive into like, is that a logical fear? It sounds like, you know, you guys are already putting limits on it with AI for ethics, but I'd love to hear your perspective on where AI is going and, you know, how helpful, how dangerous it could be. Like just I know so many subjects. That wasn't even really a question. I just gave you like a preamble. Uh, so let's start there. Albert, I was going to say, you know, there is so much to unpack in what you just yeah. said. I can go in so many different directions. No, but, you know, all, all great points that you bring up, right? Maybe I'll start with a little bit about my background because I was not the yeah. dean of engineering. I sit on the advisory board, the industrial advisory board for the dean of engineering at Cal Poly School of Engineering. And what that means is really bringing in the industry lens and to help shape curriculum, right? Because this technology is evolving so rapidly. Right. So we bring in you know, what, where's the industry heading and what should we be teaching our students so that we're preparing for the next future generation. So yeah, I do have a broad array of experience. You know, maybe I'll start with a little bit about my background, Albert. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So, uh, you know, look, I did the traditional path of, you know, I have a bachelor's and master's in computer science and an MBA in finance and, you know, really, you know, stuck to the data space, right? I have going to totally date myself, but I've actually programmed on assembly language and COBOL and, you know, languages that have become outdated now. But even at that time, we did learn AI in theory, right? But it was really theory. There was not much we could do. This was early 90s. You know, there was not much we could do because we didn't have access to the compute or massive amounts of data. So it was more, you know, imaginary applications of AI. And I feel so fortunate to have lived during this time when things that we could just imagine is becoming real. So my career journey has been, you know, always anchored in data and then evolving it to, you know, then came the big uh, from transactional move to business intelligence. Remember that uh, a few uh, decades ago, it was a cool thing, business intelligence and data warehousing. When we started looking at data to, you know, actually drive financial reports, right? That was a big deal. You you know, 
you may not remember it, but I remember there was a lot of angst on, you know, how is this different? Why do we need a separate data construct? You know, what is this helping us do, right? And then came, you know, once big data and compute power took off, then came machine learning and data science and AI and kind of going through that cultural shift from a work perspective. My background, having worked in telecom and financial services, banks, trading, manufacturing, field services, I think, you know, I've been very fortunate to anchor myself on data and see this evolution firsthand and naturally grew through my career, you know, as I started from hands-on coding to management and then leading large initiatives and taking products to market. What I've seen is, you know, it's an interesting era. If you take a step back, we are living in this time where, you know, there are three parallel streams. Uh, Think of the first stream as a core research in AI and data, the core technologies, whether it is deep learning or neural network, you know, that is still shaping and that's still evolving. That's happening in research groups and research teams in academia with PhD students, right? That's a core research that's happening. Then there is a second stream, which is also evolving, taking that, you know, core technology and applying it in the real world across industries, across functions, right? So think of it, you're still building the engine for the car, but in parallel, you are also building the car and trying to drive it. Right. So that's, you know, the second stream. And then the third stream is really what you were touching a little bit on is all the consequences of using the technology. In the second stream, we purely focus on the value creation Mm -hmm. from AI. Right. We are thinking of how can this optimize my supply chain? How can this help with sourcing? How can this help provide more personalized marketing? Right. It's very focused on value creation. But you know, in addition to the value creation, there are negative impacts that could happen because, you know, that's why this first stream is important. This technology is not fully developed. It's not in an end state. So, you know, we don't know all of the consequences of using this technology, which could be right from, you know, impact to health, addiction, you know, the social impacts to it, right? So, you know, there are a lot of risks associated with it and there are no regulations. So sticking to that example, the speed have not yet been defined because we don't know, you know, what are all the possible consequences. So one key step as we think about this, you know, this broader framing, right, about these three parallel streams, I think a lot about that third stream because I do think we need to be talking about risk and ethics and thinking about how do we put these guardrails in place so that we can innovate faster, so that we can keep getting value, but at the same time, we're mitigating the negative things that could come out of this technology. So a lot, I've shared a lot as well. Yeah. Where do you want to go deeper into? Yeah, let's, well, let's start with the good stuff because I think the good stuff is always the most important thing because I agree with you. The, the spirit of innovation typically is positive. Most people don't have a negative spirit of innovation, right? They want to solve actual problems. And so I've heard some really amazing use cases of AI being better ident- able to identify, let's say, like I read, did a little research on AI being better able to develop, uh, excuse me, detect health outcomes, uh, spot cancer earlier, the, you know, more accurate than a human eye, more yeah. sophisticated, faster processing speed to come back with a conclusion that says, hey, your health is in dire need of help or you know, identifying, hey, this is actually just, this is benign. It's not a problem. And then we hear some of the other use cases that are transferring in business, being able smarter. Like I know like certain companies are 
you mentioned supply chain, right? Changing the way things are made without requiring human input to say like, hey, listen, let's route the products from A to B. Instead of from A to B, let's go ACB because it's going to be faster because of whatever reasons. I'd love for you to share some of these really cool stories of like how it's benefiting businesses right now. Like, because, you know, a lot of times when we hear about AI, we think about a future state, but it's here. It's already here and it's already positively impacting companies and uh, outcomes. So I'd love for you to share some of these anecdotal stories. So, you know, I always love hearing the stories because I think when you're hearing it for the first time, when you hear about AI, you think it's in a future state. But then when you hear what's actually happening, it's like, wow, this is we're closer to the future than we really think. Yes. Yes. I can tell you, I, I sat in a classroom in you know, I'm not going to say the year, but imagine, you know, we'll see personalized marketing, right? I remember this sitting and talking about, oh, you know, won't it be great if we go for a movie and it shows, you know, trailers that is appealing to me. And it was such a future state, Albert, that we couldn't even, you know, imagine it becoming real. And look, look at this, like, you know, 30 years later, it's happening. So I think, you know, uh, the other part is also to what you said, it's easier to relate to AI from a personalized marketing and personalized offer perspective, which I think most people get. That's where you know AI is being used. Personalized, whether it's serving personalized content or personalized ads, you know that is really something that's happening. What we don't hear is looking at uh, you know these nitty gritty problems on the traditional and very old industries like industrial companies, right? Mm-hmm. And I'll share an example of an aviation company that manufactures jet engines. We were looking at data from, you know, the so-called black box that we've all heard about from jet engine and seeing how do you actually use that data and tie it in with service records to predict engine failure so that you could prevent unplanned downtime and by proactively sending a field service engineer, right? So no more flight delays or no more missed flights. When we start flying again, but you know, it was one of those where, you know, a, a data and AI machine learning was being used in a use case, which is where it's a very old industry, right? So look, and that can extend to pretty much any equipment that you look at, right? Whether it is a jet engine or the railway engine or the MRI machine, the X-ray machine, right? You know, all of these um, equipments now with sensors and with IoT have started gathering data which is driving insights and making those machines smarter. So that's one cool use case that I've seen. The other one is really where we are able to engage with customers in a better way, right? Like this conversation itself, Albert, you know, could have been in two different languages. Like I could be speaking in a different language. You could be speaking in a different language, but you know, uh, there is live, you know, translation happening where you can actually read and communicate, right? There are tools that exist, like, you know, we take things like translate and maps for granted, but I remember a time when, you know, you had to look at the AAA maps to figure out the optimal path, (laughs) right? And now, you know, you just take those. And all of this is using AI at its core, right? It's really about looking at data and optimizing the paths for you, you know, finding out the translations real time. So, you know, these are just some of those examples. I was also give, going to give you an example of, you know, trying to engage with customers better, not just through personalized marketing and personalized ads, but also, you know, we are used to technologies like chatbot, which can engage with you and take care of rudimentary things. You know, if you use your app 
on the phone for your banking, right? That has become so smooth. You don't even need to go to an ATM machine, right? You can deposit a check, you can check your balance, you can do so much over the phone. And at its core, it's AI because that data is being captured to do these routine work, but you could have a real conversation with the banker when you need that human touch and when you need advice. So, you know, across all industries, AI is being used in different levels. And even it's across all functions, not just within marketing. You know, that uh, example you just gave about instant live translations, I actually got to experience that firsthand. Just a year ago, I went on a, a trip to Taiwan before everything shut down. And I remember my friends saying like, oh, you have a Google phone? I was like, Ed, you can, you know, because I was, I was reading a menu. I was trying to read a menu and um, trying to like practice my Chinese. And my friend's like, why are you even doing that? And I was like, what do you mean? He just took a picture of the menu and it translated for him. I was like. <laughs> yeah, I know. And <laughs> Which I was blown away. I remember, you know, my trip to China and I don't understand anything besides ni hao ma and xie xie. Yep. How are you? Thank you. <laughs> you know, but, you know, we were, we, we love doing local things and we were going to Chinese stores where everything was labeled Chinese and we were just using our phone and an app to translate it live and, you know, even getting like what ingredients are in it, right? So th that technology is very powerful. It's also surprising, isn't it, that we take those things for granted now? Yeah. It's expected. Oh, yeah, of course, you know, we, we should be able to translate it. Why not? Well, you know, the thing is, to the consumer perspective, right? So if I don't know too much about programming, for the consumer perspective, yeah. the AI curve probably feels a little slow. Because when, you know, we think about like when chatbots first started making a lot of adoption, let's say 2015, 16. I remember AI chatbots were all the rage. Yes. But like it was frustrating because you would say, you know, what's your order number? And you type it in, like, I don't know what you mean. It's like, what would you like to do? It's like, tell me where it is. And it'd be like, I don't know what you mean. Can you type it in? <laughs> and yeah. it was a little frustrating. And I remember because I worked at a software company that was trying to develop an algorithm that could identify objects for marketing in creative. So the idea was that if I was, let's say, a, you know, world-renowned soda company, and I wanted pictures of people drinking the soda at a ball game, that I could just type that in. It would bring me back all the pictures like that. But it was quite hard to program. It would constantly not work. And not because of anything the engineers were doing wrong, but it just didn't, like you said, it didn't have enough data inputs to truly know what was a ball game versus what was not a ball game or like across enough sports. Like it, you know, you would program a ball, 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 but let's say a hockey puck doesn't look like a ball. So it'd be like, this isn't a game. I'm like, no, it is a game. Yeah, yeah, so true. And so there's kind of like the AI itself has a learning curve where I think when customers first hear the word AI, they think it should do everything. But in reality, it takes a while before it gathers enough data to figure something out. Talk to us a little bit about like how that actually works where are you starting to see, like, at how many data points does an AI start becoming more accurate? Is there like a number? Do you need to, you know, for example, it needs 10 million data points or something like that before it becomes accurate? I'd love to hear your perspective on how AI, what it takes to develop AI today versus, you know, five years ago. It just gets better. So I'll give you this jet engine example because I, I absolutely love it. When we started looking at the jet engine, you know, it was one of those which was originally, uh, you know, started getting manufactured in the 50s. And there were about uh, 32 data points that were captured, right? But <laughs> what happened is, you know, once we started going down this path, the company realized, you know, you need to capture more data. And so this was 32 data points being captured during three times in a flight, takeoff, climb, and landing, right? So there were three time periods, right? 
But the newer engines, they started equipping with more sensors and more frequency for capturing data. So to give you a sense of it, it was capturing about 32,000 data points in the newer jet engines, 32,000 data points at the rate of 1 16th per second. So the volume of data was just insane. The amount of data that was being captured to be able to fine tune the model over time and improve its performance. So that's 32,000 times 16 was the actual number of data points captured per second. Whereas before you mentioned 32 data points, three times in a flight. So 96 total data points on a flight. Yeah, so you can imagine the massive amounts of data that was being captured, but it helps fine tune the model. Now, this is one of those, you know, IoT specific examples, but think about even chatbots, right? I remember the first time when the voice recognition systems rolled out, it didn't recognize my my so-called Indian, British, American accent, right? There is no way, you know, it would recognize it, but it's training. And that's why the big thing that we're using with AI today is that you know, underlying technology is machine learning, right? And that's right. it learns over time and it improves, right? Think of it as a child. The first time it's, uh, you know, out there interacting with you, it is still trying to, you know, it has been trained on some data sets, but it's getting the feedback and learning and improving over time. And if you think about just chatbots as an example, you know, that framing of having these three parallel streams, the core technology of chatbot has also evolved, right? It's evolved to not only take a voice, but it's evolved to have, you know, the concept of digital humans, where you have a human image actually interacting with you. There is, it's also evolved to that phase where you're using that same technology besides customer interaction to capture memories. Like I, I was uh, recently reading an article where William Shatner, our Star Trek Captain Trek, you know, is using that technology to preserve his memory, right? Where he's giving an interview and it's tailored after him. But think about all the possible ways that this technology can be used besides in the business world, but also in the personal side. Right. And now I think as more and more people are using AI and these technologies, they are learning how to train it better because most people have intuitively figured out that the more you interact with it, the more better it gets. And I think you're definitely seeing that happening in the real world as well. But that's where also the bad actors have figured out that you can train it to be misused. Right. So you see both sides of it. Yeah, I mean, your point is exactly right. I remember when the iPhone X first came out with face unlock and there was a big, you know, it was kind of comical. I laugh about it, but in the Asian community, that face, it didn't work because everyone could unlock everyone else's phone in the Asian community. Like they hadn't then figured out like Asian, the differences between Asian faces, yeah. um, which is comical then, but I, they figured it out now. But, you know, it's one of those use cases where maybe you don't realize until you're because you're actively programming it. You don't know. But we talk a little bit about that, like what goes into programming these yeah. these algorithms. So artificial intelligence is typically, you know, people like to say it's an algorithm, but it's, it's usually not just one thing. It's like a huge code base that's astronomical. And most engineers are only working on a piece of it. Yeah. But talk about how you mentioned, like you have to teach it, yeah. like you have to teach the AI. And which is crazy because, and that's where it gets into what I was talking about my preamble, which is, you know, there's a lot of companies now they have artificial intelligence helping their customers and get better services, but they actually don't know like what decisions it'll make, which is crazy. Like they can't quantifiably tell you like it'll do this every single time because it, it won't. It evaluates too many factors. 
talk a little bit about what it takes to program in AI and what that means for us in, going forward. Yeah, there, there is a notion that it's like a, a magic box that you throw massive amounts of data and it will just, you know, throw insights, right? That's something that you hear very commonly. But really, you know, it is about the b- best way for me to talk about it is to start with the, you know, you want to start with the business problem. Mm-hmm. I hear too often on, oh, I have this massive amount of data. What can AI do for me? I'm like, no, you know, let's start with what are some of the key business problems that you have? And let's try to see, work backwards. And so if you think about, you know, that jet engine failure, right? You, we knew yeah. it was about predicting fight, flight, you know, unplanned downtime so that there was no flight delay. Then you work backwards and figure out what kind of data is needed to be able to predict? What do we have in-house right now that we can use to train the model on so that it can show you some of the correlation which can then drive to say, these are the parameters when it reaches this threshold, usually there is a failure. So let's see where it is at today. And then you can predict that failure, send a field, so there's an action following up. So working backwards, identifying the right data set and additional data sets that might be needed to actually come up with the insight. That's the first step, but that's literally the first step, Albert, because during the data discovery, you might find correlations that you had not anticipated, which could also lead to other solutions. But once you have that algorithm built out, then it needs to go through the whole process of putting it into production, which is very similar to you know what happens in the software world with DevOps. Like, now the whole notion of ML ops is coming because machine learning continues to learn and evolve. Unlike the traditional software of 20 years ago, if you built, put out a program that performed consistently and did the same, you know, ran the same formula every time, here that formula is evolving based on the data that is being fed. So it is no longer about a fixed set of code giving you a fixed answer every single time. So running it through the, you know, through the production process, deploying it into production, and then continuously watching its behavior because that software is still evolving. The answers are going to change based on the data that you feed it. And we've seen enough examples of it. So, you know, going back to your baseball example, right? If you start feeding it with, say, pizza, right? Pizza images, tagging it as the ball, you know, over time, it is going to train itself to recognize a pizza as a ball and then tag those as baseball games. Yeah. I think the simplest way to describe it, it's about teaching a child, right? When a child is born, you teach that child how to eat, right? You're continuously teaching whether you eat with a spoon or fork or with your hands or chopsticks, right? You learn it during your childhood because that's your learning phase and you're continuously evolving. Like I didn't grow up learning to eat with chopsticks, but over time, you know, you train yourself because you know, maybe you're sure. in that situation, right? So I think the best way to think about it is, you know, you're feeding in data to teach the algorithm to take its first pass, but it's continuing to learn even while it's out in production. What about on the other side of it, which is us as consumers, or if I'm an enterprise, I'm the consumer of the AI, how is the acceptance of it? Because your point about, let's say, let's use maintenance, equipment maintenance. I think that's a really great example because for the most part and through the history of time, most people fix their machines when they broke. <laughs> that was the first time you addressed the machine. Like, oh, it's not working. If you think about us with our cars today, we're a lot like that, right? If the light goes on, something's wrong. We take it in the shop. 
I mean, outside of oil changes, people don't really do preventative maintenance. Like even when it comes to like tire maintenance, most consumers of vehicles, the first time they go get their tires fixed is because like the inspection tells them, hey, you're out of code. Like you're actually on dangerous tires. And like, oh, geez, I didn't realize that. (laughs) Most people don't realize until there's some type of warning. And so if you've been in an industry, let's say I've been in a manufacturing or jet engine industry and I've been there for like 30 years, you know, most of the time, maybe I didn't really think something was wrong until I got a code or a light that told me something was wrong. But now you're preventatively telling me that, hey, this is about to go out. Yes. Are they willing to accept that or how has the acceptance of this information been? Yeah, no, this, you know, that is the crux of the matter. Like you can have the most the most 99.9999% accurate model that is going to, that is predicting, but if nobody uses it, it's a failed project. And, you know, one, one of the projects that, um, you know, that I've worked on was, you know, being able to predict the failure of a factory floor machine, mm-hmm. you know, and now here it is not just, a, you know, just a regular consumer. These are, you know, factory floor workers who have been doing this job. It's in their, uh, you know, it's in their instinct, you know, they just feel that they have that intuition, right? We put out this amazing AI solution, which would predict when a machine might fail, uh, which was on the bottleneck path. And, you know, it was very accurate, but nobody used it because it was not in the culture of that, um, the manufacturing plant to really trust a machine. And at that point, we sure. realized that, look, you know, the, the, you know, it's a failed AI project because if nobody uses it, then you cannot really say this was a great model. So what we had to do is, you know, really think about how do you drive that adoption, right? Any new technology, there needs to be adoption of that technology for it to be successful. And AI especially so because it needs that feedback loop. And we had to actually look at, you know, for me personally, it was also the time of realization that you need to think about UX and design and, you know, adoption upfront and not just focus on the technology. You need to think about where is this technology being deployed? Who is going to be using it? How do we make sure they, you know, engage and use it? So driving adoption, the design thinking behind it is super important. Thinking about the end user upfront is super important. The way we solve for it is actually by, um, through gamification. We started giving points to uh, workers who actually gave feedback and followed the instructions because that was the only way to improve the AI. So you gave points which they could redeem for small things, which kind of led to the adoption. So you have to get creative on how do you drive adoption and that mindset change because you're absolutely right. You cannot just throw technology over the fence and expect the users to use it unless they're teenagers, my teenager sons will take anything and run with it. But, you know, in the enterprise world, you absolutely have to think about the end users and how is it relevant for them, their job, and make, you know, make that a key priority of the project. What was the outcome after? It sounds like it was like a, almost like a split test, right? One group gets gamified, the other group doesn't. What was an outcome from the test? It was great. I mean, you know, Everybody likes earning points, right? So <laughs> I think as soon as we turned on gamification it, and started assigning points, you know, it, the adoption just went up. And that strategy actually has worked in some other cases as well. Like this was just one, but, you know, I think gamification, uh, this was when we were looking at delivery paths and, you know, you know, the drivers kind of know that, you know, their preferred delivery path, right? When the algorithm started recommending a better delivery path based on the traffic and, you know, which would be optimal. They were not really adopting it, but giving them points 
to accept the path or to give a comment on why they were not taking it actually drove to more adoption. So I think gamification and giving points usually helps. And I haven't seen a, use, a scenario yet where you know points haven't worked. <laughs> I like that. We're all just kids at heart. How about the actual business outcomes? Like did the, the, the drivers that were relying on the AI, did they notice, for example, uh, maybe they spent less time on the road, they were less fatigued because they have less time in traffic. I didn't know if there were any outcomes like that. You know, as enterprises, we are very good at defining the expected business outcomes upfront, right? You know, we will see less fuel usage, you know, less fatigue, less uh, delays. Those are easier to define. And, you know, we, we usually define those before starting the AI project. And we definitely were able to track for it. But, you know, it usually takes a bump. And in the beginning, there is, you know, there is no outcome. And then you go on to, you know, the actual outcome that was defined. And you see some un unexpected ones, too. I'll give you another example. And I, I'm happy to give you other, but, you know, since you're on the theme of this jet engine, I'll just stick to it. You know, this one was looking at, you know, going back to that example of the predicting jet engine failure. You could actually see correlations where you could see how the pilot was flying the plane. Were they actually following the training or the code that was provided to them? Were they hitting the, uh, you know, with the right amount of force or were they accelerating too fast, right? Which in turn caused engine deterioration, which in turn, you know, caused more engine failure, right? Were they actually doing what they were trained to do or were they, you know, exceeding some of those, right? So we hit the, one of those points where, you know, you could see pilot performance compared to their training. And obviously the airline wanted that data so that it could, you know, be a feedback for their uh, performance review, which uh, was not the original intent of the problem we were trying to solve, right? So, you know, we had to go, and this is one of those that third stream of thinking about the risks and unintended consequences on, you know, what do we do with this data? What do we do with the correlation that we found? Because we don't want that performance review to be necessarily impacted, but at the same time, there needs to be a change. What we said is we would give you the aggregated, you know, findings. And uh, what the airline company actually went back and did was change their training so that, you know, it was more easily understandable and drive more frequent trainings to actually make sure that, you know, the pilots were adhering to the training that was provided. Interesting. So it actually, it was evaluating their actual behavior, their input. So what started as let's monitor jet engine failure turned into like, oh, we can actually tell when the pilots are not performing to whatever the protocol is. Yeah. So you could find when you're going through the data discovery phase, you do find correlations, you know, which can lead to other AI side projects, right? So you have to stay focused on the outcome you're trying to drive and, uh, you know, keep this more on, you know, the pipeline, just like you could find additional correlations when you go through this phase, you might also find, you know, th this data just doesn't give you any insights, right? <laughs> there is zero correlation here, right? So I think you see both. It's not like uh, just because you have massive amount of data that you'll be able to find insights and drive a business outcome. There you go. I like that. It could be null results. Everything everyone expects a result. It's like, well, you might find there's nothing, yeah. <laughs> but... And let's let's talk about that final topic is, you know, I think we can all agree that AI is the spirit of it is to help benefit lives, benefit business, whether you're using it in the enterprise world, the medical world, the personal world. We want better outcomes. We want faster outcomes. We want to get to results and uh, resolutions of any problem faster. I think we all agree there. But then there's this other idea, which is 
because AI is something that, like you said, it's a child learning. Well, a child can be taught bad things too. Yeah. And then of course, the number one fear that, you know, uh, doomsdayers have uh, is that it'll teach itself that, that, you know, oh, the best way to solve this problem is to, you know, like Terminator, eliminate people. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're of course, those doomsdayers. Talk a little about like, you know, where you sit in the ethics side of things where it says, hey, because this is such a powerful thing, we have to control what goes in it because of these potential negative outcomes. Talk a little about that. Yeah, I think uh, one of the key factors is, you know, uh, that I say is when you are looking at all the value that AI can create, irrespective of the project, right, that you're working on or the solution or the outcome you want to drive, take a proactive step to think about what are all the ways this could go wrong? What are all the ways this could be trained by bad actors? What are all the ways this could be misused, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking proactively about the ways this could go wrong is a good start. The other big factor is that to think uh, about, you know, to bring in diversity into the teams that's designing, building, developing AI. And here, here is the reason, right? Hear a lot about bias. And one of the key factors is that we all are biased. As humans, you know, what makes us unique is our biases, right? Otherwise, we would all be thinking mm -hmm. alike and talking alike, and then, you know, that's no fun, right? We are shaped by our biases, and biases are inherent to every human. But you don't want those biases to go into these algorithms that's been scaled out to all of humanity. You know, no doubt, I think I'm an amazing person, but I also know I'm a biased. I don't want all of my biases to be coded and amplified out, right? So bringing in that diversity of thought is super important. And when I, so when I speak about diversity, you know, there is gender diversity, racial diversity, but, you know, diversity of uh, people from different educational backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, different geographic backgrounds. Those are so important to have embedded within AI for AI to be truly successful, right? And, you know, one of the key factors to mitigate bias is to bring this diversity of thought. I'll give you an example, like, you know, even beyond AI, like, for example, for an AI example, and I'll give you this one is a little bit, you know, lighthearted uh, because we, we've all heard of the, you know, larger bias challenges. But and this was a few years ago, there was a group of data scientists who built this algorithm to your example of, you know, identifying balls, they were looking at identifying shoes. And they provided different pictures of shoes and, you know, flip-flops and shoes and sneakers. And, you know, they built out this algorithm, which could look at a picture and say whether it was a shoe or not a shoe. And it worked great, except when you showed women's high-heeled pumps, right, the shoes with high heels. It did not flag it as a shoe. Guess what? This was built by two male data scientists and they had just not fed that data to the algorithm. Mm -hmm. You know, I say this in more in jest and as a lighthearted example, but think about it if these are identifying, say, a mole on your arm, which could be cancerous, right? Have you trained on all the different skin colors? Have you trained on all the possible shapes depending oh, yeah. on people's ethnicity? So being able to bring that diversity of thought can actually make AI robust. So I think, um, you know, for me, ethics is super important for us to figure out. I have seen companies in two, two buckets. Uh, one is the ones who are more advanced in AI and are trying to play catch up and figuring out, okay, you know, we have all these AI solutions, we have all these AI tools, you know, what are the ethical implications of it? Let's mitigate it. Then there is the other ones which are early in their AI journey who are saying, what are the possible ethical implications that could come up from the solutions that we're trying to build? 
let's put the guardrails in place so that our AI and engineering teams can run faster and innovate faster, right? Here are the guidelines. Here are the ethical principles that we will agree upon as a company and build it out, build out the guardrails first and then run fast. So you see two categories and, you know, I think, um, I am super hopeful. I think the conversation on ethics has become a top priority topic. I do think there is a lot of noise on it, but at the same time, it's also raising a lot of awareness and it is helping us move this topic forward, right? So I don't think it's a Terminator scenario, Albert. Yeah. But, you know, it could be if we don't all get to be part of the conversation and start making sure these guardrails are put in place. Your whole point in like diversity of thought is is key. I was since thinking about this recent story I was reading today about an accident that happened with Tesla turning on the uh, autonomous driving or driverless feature, but there was no, there was actually no driver. The two people in the vehicle were in the passenger seat and then the back seat. And so it brings up like to your point, like if you've not thought of it, yeah. then you haven't coded it. It doesn't know how to evaluate it. I'm sure Tesla and every automaker is now going to put in a feature that says like if there's no one in the driver's seat or if the camera on the driver's seat shows that they're sleeping or not paying attention, it has to stop driverless or turn on an alarm or something to be like, hey, you got to you. This can't work like that. Yeah. So that, you know, because like you said, they haven't seen that use case, so it hasn't come up with there. You know, one of the things about ethics, when we think about like AI, that's the number one use case I hear that people want to see come true, which is autonomous driving, right? The, the vehicle has to think and evaluate scenarios. And what we're learning is that the amount of information a human brain can process in a split second, like what's dangerous, what's not dangerous, is just really difficult to program. And I'm curious, you know, you mentioned this, like, so like this is a little, it's a little off topic, but it's also on topic. So like one of the things I have debates with people about is like, what should the car be programmed to value? The driver's life or the world around its life? I mean, it's a big ethical question, right? Because there are accidents, there's probably potential accidents where if it swerves, it threatens the driver. But like, for example, this is an insane example, but I want to talk about it. If you're driving and a deer crosses your path and you hit the deer, the insurance company would rather you hit the deer. Well, I mean, by, by rates, it would rather you hit the deer than drive off and cause an accident. Mm -hmm. It sounds insane, right? But it's, but it's saying like, hey, don't cause, don't harm others. Yeah. A deer is not an other. It's like a value. The insurance company said like the deer is not another. Because I know this because I've hit a deer before. It was, it was terrible. But then I know someone who swerved yeah. and didn't hit a deer and hit another person. And that was like even worse. How should things be programmed? Should it value like my life or the world around me's life? I'm curious what you think. I think, uh, look, those are interesting questions. And that's why I was pointing out this overarching frame, right? It has, there is no regulation, yeah. right? Ideally, there should be a regulation or a playbook. You know, like this is what should be done, right? So it comes down to these individual companies. I know there's a lot of work happening in the policy and yeah. regulation space. So, you know, hopefully we'll see some guidelines on it. But here, here is, you know, to contract that, let me give you an example, right? From the medical phase, right? All uh, doctors are supposed to take a Hippocrates oath on, you know, do no yep. harm, right? Now, if that was really true, then they would never be able to perform surgery because if you are, you know, cutting open somebody's stomach, there is harm being caused to that skin, right? So you Correct. have to make that judgment. And that is, you know, is this in the long run, is it better or is it worse? Because we all as humans, irrespective of the profession, will have to make those calls. You know, 
the reality is for specifically for AI or the self-driving car that you just described, there is no, you know, not enough thought put into it. There is not enough, you know, guidelines around it, right? But the precedent is there in other fields. We just have to look at history. We just have to learn from other fields. We have to bring that diversity of thought to actually move this conversation forward. You know, because what you may agree upon, what the insurance may agree upon might be different than what I agree upon. And that's what yeah. you need as an industry. You need guidance, right? And that's that's a lot of work that I do under, uh, you know, our Trustworthy AI and Deloitte AI Institute is really try to connect the dots and bring this array of uh, potential areas and what are the pros and cons of each, right? Because it's not it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. Well, Bina, I appreciate you joining us today on IT Visionaries and sharing your wisdom, your insight, your experience, and all the above when it comes to AI. But now it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Bina, this is where we ask you questions not related to work to try to get to know you a little bit better. Awesome. You ready? Let's go. All right. So this is more, it's a little bit related to work, but not quite work. What is your dream state AI? Give me an example of when dream state AI is here. I'll use mine first. I say AI doesn't, isn't, hasn't arrived until I can have my own Jarvis, like from Iron Man, because Jarvis <laughs> figures out everything. Like, yeah. I, it's arguably, Tony Stark knows nothing. He just asks Jarvis a question. And like Jarvis is like, yeah, this is the answer. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. I, I love that. But I think that, you know, we'll become too dependent and not use our brain power as much. Here is my dream state. And I have one dream state by every industry. I'll just give you one from healthcare. <laughs> or maybe I can give you two. But here is one, you know, like if a patient, uh, you know, is at a doctor and gets detected by a rare form of a rare disease, you know, there is a network of machines connected to each other and doctors connected to each other who can, you know, traverse the entire database across the world and find, you know, what cure has worked in another part of the world with a unique treatment and brings it back to this patient within five minutes of diagnosis and says, here is something that has worked in the past. That's insane. Everything is connected. Another example, there is a, you know, we have this really icky problems, large complex problems around solving for poverty, you know, human trafficking, climate change, cancer, right? There is no one solution for it. But, you know, my vision is that AI can enable education for everybody in the world, like make everybody educated, literate, basic literacy, because I believe there is a 95-year-old grandmother somewhere in a remote village in um, Africa who has a solution for the cancer in her head, but you know, she just hasn't been educated or literate enough that she can translate it into words that can actually be applied in the med- medical world. So driving education, driving more, you know, healthcare treatments, I think those are my dream states for AI. That's pretty powerful. That's better than my Jarvis. Uh, <laughs> now I feel selfish because I was asking for a personal assistant. Here you... in. <laughs> Venus saving the world. I'm talking about a personal assistant. So we'll go with Venus Dream State. That is phenomenal. You know, you mentioned earlier that you traveled to China. Are you a world traveler yourself? Have you been around the world or are you more of a homebody? I love traveling uh, for fun. I love traveling with uh, with my family because it's I have two teenager boys and it's a good time to bond. And, you know, you see, we've been uh, before COVID hit, we were actually on a mission to uh, see all the, you know, the wonders of the world. So oh, wow. to China, to Rome, to Peru, 
uh, to Paris and, you know, we, we were on a roll. We, we've seen the Taj Mahal. So we were, you know, really trying to see the wonders of the world, get that done. So, but I love traveling. So what's next then? Because I feel like, you know, the, the travel passports are out, COVID, I, mean, I don't know what's going on, but I feel like travel is about to open up. Where's the next place you need to go? Egypt was next. So hopefully, you know, we'll get there. Well, Mina, I appreciate you joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing all your experience. And we look forward to sharing your uh, knowledge and wisdom with all of our audience soon. Albert, thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun conversation. Take care. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.